I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Back when I worked for Odyssey, I wrote a, I think it was the top 10 chapters in all of Percy Jackson. Okay. No one um, was reading my articles on Odyssey. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin-offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classics scholar and mythology enthusiast. That was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and we are currently between Battle of the Labyrinth and The Last Olympian, which is where the demigod files lives. If you haven't read The Demigod Files, it's a series of short stories that takes place between Battle of the Labyrinth and The Last Olympian. And today we're reading the first two of these stories, The Bronze Dragon and The Stolen Chariot, in that order. That's not the order they are in the books, but it's, in the, it's the order they're in chronologically. But before we start talking about those two short stories, after this episode, we'll only have two more episodes left about the original Percy Jackson series. We'll have The Sword of Hades and then The Last Olympian. And then after that, we're planning on doing a sort of post-mortem episode where we get to talk about the series as a whole and answer some of the questions and analyses that we've been getting in our email and on our social media. So if you want to be a part of that episode, you can send any of your own thoughts, anything you think we missed, or just questions you want us to respond to, to monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. 
or you can also send us a message on our Instagram or Twitter, um, which all of our social media is at PJOPod. Okay, so this was your first time reading both of these. It was indeed my first time reading both of these. Thoughts? <laughs> Preferences? Um, you know, The Diary of Luke Cassellan is a really great short story. <laughs> no, I, I mean, they're fun. The Diary of Luke Cassellan was just such a high bar. Uh-huh. I, I think the bronze dragon is fun, and the stolen chariot, it, it approaches the bar, but I feel like neither of them quite uh-huh. get there. No, I'd agree. There's a reason that I put these both <laughs> in their own episode and then gave the Sword of Hades its own episode. <laughs> Bronze Dragon, I thought was really fun. I really enjoyed the uh, camp shenanigans. I feel like if you are a Perkabeth person, this is a great. Perkabeth. This is great. Is it Persebeth? Is it... Oh, God. Did you just say it with a hard C? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I've changed <laughs> camps. Um, if you are a Persebeth person, this is a great short story. There's a lot of camp shenanigans, which I feel like we've been, we've not really had a lot in our actual series. So it's fun to have like the stakes being all about like capture the flag and mm-hmm. the fireworks show and who's going to ask who out. Because as someone who went to a summer camp, that is, I can tell you with absolute certainty, the main focus of everybody at all times. So in that way, it's fun to get that version of Camp Half-Blood in this. But um, like with our Diary of Luke Castellan episode, we don't want to force you to read these. If you haven't, we understand that a lot of people may not have picked up these separate books from the series. So we'll give you a brief rundown of each story before we talk about it. So you have some idea of what happens. So this short story takes place two weeks after the end of the quest in Battle of the Labyrinth, but before the end of the book. So we're still at camp that summer. It's July, right before the fireworks, and the story is basically all about a game of Capture the Flag where Percy and Annabeth are on opposite sides. Percy teams up with Beckendorf, who's a son of Hephaestus, if you've forgotten, and Annabeth teams up with Selina, who is a daughter of Aphrodite. During the game, Percy and Beckendorf stumble upon the Ant Hill, which is a giant ant hill. <laughs> filled with mm-hmm. giant ants and the ants kidnap Be- Beckendorf and the rest of the story is basically about Percy, Annabeth, and Selina trying to get him out of the ant hill using a discarded giant robotic dragon that used to guard the camp border before Thalia's tree was there to protect them. So we can start with something that I went into the short story thinking about which was on another Percy Jackson podcast, Camp Half Pod, when they read this short story, I remember them pointing out that Annabeth and Percy should not be on good terms at this point in the timeline because in Battle of the Labyrinth, they aren't in a good place at the end of the quest. And at the end of the summer, they're still in like a pretty rocky place. And so it's kind of a strange place for us to start. Wait, why? What, what caused their rift again? Um... Just like all of Battle of the Labyrinth, it starts in Battle of the Labyrinth with the first chapter, Rachel, just right. like existing, kind of messes them up. And there's also Annabeth knowing that Percy was on Calypso's island. And beyond that, it's like, uh, I think in Battle of the Labyrinth, it's described that Percy and Annabeth can't bring themselves to talk about the quest that they were just on, mm. because every time it comes up, Luke comes up or Kronos comes up and neither of them want to talk about it and so they can't like process what they just went through and so they're in just like a really strange place for the entire summer but in this short story 
Annabeth is acting like very forward and there's nothing off between them which just like stands out after Battle of the Labyrinth. I don't know if I agree with that though because that was what I felt that there is something off between them reading this because she's treating him kind of like a lot more similarly to I think how she treated him in Lightning Thief and it's very much kind of a regression towards like at least thinks to herself like so she's back in this place where she doesn't care what happens to Percy which is why she does what she does over the course of this short story mm-hmm. like she's kind of back to being very mercenary and very willing to kind of use everything as a stratagem and kind of emotionally distance herself in that way that's at least how I read her here yeah and it's so soon after their quest that neither of them have probably totally realized that what just happened in the labyrinth is going to color their relationship for those next couple months. I also think Percy and her relationship has like escalated to extremes in a fun way in this short story also because I think in Battle of the Labyrinth they're kind of dancing around each other where we're getting more and more of an escalation of like them kind of being into each other a little bit. And in this one, you get Percy being like, he hasn't really admitted he's into her. But in here, he's like actually finally starting to be like, okay, she looks really cute in combat armor, which I love as a sentence. (laughs) So yeah, basically, we capture the flag begins. Percy and Beckendorf are trying to figure out what to do. And Annabeth comes up to Percy and she says, okay, I want you to go right. Stay out of the action. I'm doing this to help you. And then they walk away. Percy immediately turns to Beckendorf like, so we're going left. She's trying to get me to do something. I don't know what it is. I don't trust it. We're going to do the exact opposite of what she told me to do. Uh, And then they get to the anthill. Which is a camp legend. And when they get there, these like six foot long ants are dragging the head of the old automaton. They used to guard the camp that I think Hephaestus made or a child of Hephaestus made. I can't remember. This was the thing that I flagged reading this part that this short story adds to the canon is like the realization that there is a history at Mm. camp and that like the camp has its own myths and legends about like its own history. Mm. Like it's not something that I feel like we've really gotten to hear much about despite so much of the story being defined by the past and what came before Percy got there. I feel like the actual history of Camp Half-Blood is very rarely discussed. But here is where we're sort of beginning to suggest that there is a history here and not just a history but like there are myths here that are just Mm. about camp because like the anthill is something that Percy's only heard about in stories and when Annabeth says that the bronze dragon is the old camp guardian Selena's immediate reaction is like but that's just a legend yeah for me like the world building was also um blown out a little bit they talk about basically kind of finally answer the question of like before Thalia's sacrifice in her tree made the magical borders what protected camp and so this bronze dragon apparently was one of the guardians so that means that there had to have been a bunch of other guardians and other Mm -hmm. means that protected the camp that we don't really know about but it also does answer that question of like what happened before thalia and also i think it adds a lot of weight to what happened with thalia because if the camp already had magical borders her sacrifice It still is meaningful, but it's not as meaningful as like what it's actually done now, which is provided permanent, real protection. It made me kind of wish that in Sea of Monsters, they'd tried to bring back some of those old guardians while Thalia's tree was dying. I know. You know, actually, let's 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 keep going here, because I wonder if there's also an expanded lore of like guarding the camp and having to patrol because of this reason. So like, I'm wondering if like all of the patrols that were going on in Sea of Monsters might have also had a history there. 
mm-hmm. and like this might have also been part of like the purpose of camp it wasn't just like a place you could go to be safe and train but it was a place where you'd like go train but also like have to still be actively using your skills but it makes it feel a lot more like a battle training camp when you have to constantly be drilling and protecting your own space because that's what armies have to do is you you take a space you make a camp but you can't sleep completely easy you're not safe you have to keep patrolling have scouts this is the one of the reasons why the roman army was able to do so much of what it did is because they were not only really great at fighting but they were also really great at making camps the roman word the latin word for camp is castra and a lot of the current cities in like britain for example are still named after the roman camps that were set up as bases anything anything that ends in like castor like any of that that's Castra, that's camp. Oh, something else I want to maybe touch on is how Beckendorf comments of the dragons a sign from Hephaestus. It did convince me. It did successfully convince me that it was a sign from Hephaestus. Usually the like signs from the gods, I'm like very skeptical about. <laughs> but this one I was like, yeah, it probably is actually. Yeah. I think mostly because Hephaestus was like genuinely helpful in the last book. And I don't know, Beckendorf can say anything and I'll believe him. (laughs) I trust him like that. So Beckendorf runs up to try and steal the dragon head from the ants, basically. And Percy is about to go help him. But right when he's about to go help him, Annabeth appears along with Selina to try and take Percy prisoner. Until Percy points out that Beckendorf is being overwhelmed by the ants. So Annabeth holds back Percy and Selina as the ants paralyze Beckendorf and drag him into the anthill. I feel like now is when I want to ask where the in the myths these ants are supposed to come from. So there's a couple ant myths in the Greek canon. And originally I thought this was a reference to the one I knew better, which is in mythology, the people of Achilles are called the Myrmidons. They're basically people that come from ants because they work so efficiently together, I guess. But then I looked it up just to make sure I was right, and I think it's actually coming from kind of similar to the Lucrotai in the Luke short story. The Myrmeeks are these creatures that I think were in a lot of like medieval bestiaries and like the Romans wrote about a lot. But their origin's kind of interesting, because basically there's a Greek historian named Herodotus that was living in the 400s BC who traveled around a lot and wrote the first sort of major work of history from Greece and the classical world. And he went into the Persian Empire, which at the time was considering like the edges of the known world for the Greeks. And apparently he encountered or heard stories of at least in India, these like giant ants that would dig up gold and the people that would live in the surrounding towns would go and collect like the gold dust that the ants dug up as like part of their digging. And that would be, uh, that was a good industry to be in, which is a very cool story. Um, But Obviously, these ants, don't, they were described as weird furry ants, <laughs> which <laughs> immediately gives, have some red flags for those listening at home of like, no, these aren't ants. And recently, um, someone wrote a book theorizing that they're marmots because the Persian word for marmot sounds a lot like the Greek word for ant. But apparently, this is a real thing. I'm, I think in Pakistan, there's um, like these hills that have gold in them that like the marmots do dig up as they're making their kind of holes and they would resemble giant ants in an anthill to someone who has never seen a marmot before. And for a really long time, apparently the mermaids were very popular in like Roman 
text because everyone was like, who are these ants? It's crazy. Furry <laughs> ants. Digging up gold. My goodness. Okay, so now let's reimagine this short story. Yeah. <laughs> They're marmots. The correct animal. <laughs> So Percy and everyone are distressed about Beckendorf. And then Annabeth says, no, 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 guys, don't worry. They like to eat you when you're like, when you're already dead. So their venom takes 30 minutes and it's a paralytic and then he'll be dead. So we got 30 minutes. Don't worry. And again, she's very like blase about all of this, I will say. She's like, no, no, guys, don't worry. We got 30 minutes. We're good. Yeah. She has clearly done her research, which we should now be suspicious of. Narrator Percy doesn't even question it. And I will say this is some good writing because I didn't question it either. You're just like, oh, of course Annabeth would know this. She would know this in such precise detail. Right. Of course she'd have this on hand. So Annabeth decides that their best chance of saving Beckendorf is to go try and find the body of the bronze dragon and try to reattach its head and then set the dragon loose on the anthill. And they actually do all that fairly quickly. <laughs> the head yeah. left a huge track that leads straight back to the body. And Annabeth just uh, gets in there and reassembles the dragon. I did like Percy saying, if I was going to pick one person in the world to reattach my head, I'd pick you. <laughs> and Selena, who's like crying at this point, is like, Percy, that's so sweet. <laughs> I loved getting to know Selena. In this story. Yeah. Like, you get some of getting to know Beckendorf, but I, you really yeah. get to know Selena in this one. I like the, like, dynamic comparisons as well. It's like that fun, there's also, like, that fun bit earlier where per- where Beckendorf's like, now, Percy, let me teach you about girls. And then Selena shows up and just renders him speechless. And Percy's <laughs> like, uh-huh, yeah, what do you know? What do you know? And he's like, shut up. Again, camp yeah. shenanigans. Love I to think see Beckendorf it. enjoys his role as, like, the cool older camper. But, like, yeah. absolutely is not the cool older <laughs> He's, like, the guy that's, like, really cool at camp, but, like, not cool at school. <laughs> so the way this all plays out, Annabeth gets this dragon working, and it pulls itself out of the dirt and listens to them once. I think it's Selena says that they have to go save a son of Hephaestus who's inside the anthill. Then it goes into like protector mode and goes to the anthill and immediately just starts destroying it. And so while all the ants are now focused on the giant dragon that's trying to burn them all to death, they run inside the anthill and try to find where they're keeping Beckendorf. And when they find him, his legs are paralyzed, but he's alive. And they manage to pull him out of the anthill. And then Beckendorf is actually really upset that they've reactivated the dragon because apparently automatons are really unstable if you don't go through like a whole series of checks before you reactivate them and so he says that if they don't figure out a way to power down the dragon it's gonna like go berserk and start attacking camp and so the way they decide to do that is percy distracts the dragon basically by just standing in front of it until beckendorf Ends up climbing onto its back somehow. Rips open a panel at the base of the dragon's head and yanks a wire. You know what I just realized, though? I think this is the only Percy Jackson, at least the only thing I've read, that he's not used any water powers for. Uh-huh. That's true. He doesn't even really use Riptide. He doesn't do much in this one. <laughs> <laughs> and then they successfully power the dragon off. And then Capture the Flag is somehow still going. Then Annabeth and Selena turn around and are like, okay, we're taking you prisoner now. 
and it's high key implied, although never overtly stated that yes. this was their plan all along. <laughs> right. This was a big question that I had, which was how much of this did Annabeth plan? Yeah. Because if she did plan it all, it's very season two, episode two, Captain Flint of her. Good job, Annabeth, for pulling that off. Why was she in the woods looking for this anthill? Like, why is she in these woods? What's she looking for? Is she looking for the dragon? Okay, so this is the thing. I don't think the dragon is actually part of her plan. I think that the plan was just to lead them to the anthill. If something happens, she knows that she has 30 minutes to try and help them. But, like, the idea is just capture them at the anthill. I don't think the dragon is part of it. My theory is that Annabeth found the anthill while she was working with Clarice on trying to find the entrance into camp from the labyrinth. I mean, they were exploring every piece of the woods trying to find that thing. So she very very easily could have stumbled upon it while she was doing that. And also she had been at camp for how many years? Five yeah. plus. It's like at least seven or eight years now. And Percy doesn't say that this one is totally mythical. Like he's heard people say that they've seen it. It's just sort of he hasn't seen it yet. So Annabeth might just be aware of where it is and they've just never run into it. I mean, this well, this is also like she and Clarice team up here and capture the flag. Isn't Clarice also on her team? Athena and Ares are on the same team. Yes, you're right. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what happened here. Honestly, this, this does feel like an Annabeth slash Clarice plan. Annabeth being like, okay, let's do a strategy. And Clarice being like, hey, remember that anthill we found? <laughs> <laughs> Because it seems like another next level brutal. So that makes sense to me that Clarice would be part of this plan. And it does seem like Selena is in on it, at least based on the look that they give each other at the end. Yeah. I don't think she expected people to actually get hurt. She seems very upset that Beckendorf is in trouble here. But it might just be that it's Beckendorf. Yeah, I'm going to go with that. She was expecting it to be Percy because Percy would boneheadedly rush in. Although then there's another interesting part. This is the part where I think we get a little more of that emotional depth from Battle of the Labyrinth, though, is at the end of all of this, once they get taken captive and the game's kind of over, they're talking about like what happened. And Percy says something about how brave Beckendorf was. If you have the line, read the line. I think it was a good line. Annabeth says, you know, it wasn't the bravest thing I've ever seen. And Percy says, um, what do you mean? And Annabeth says, you stood up to the dragon so Beckendorf would have his chance to jump. Now that was brave. And Percy says, or pretty stupid. And Annabeth says, Percy, you're a brave guy. Just take the compliment. I swear, is it so hard? (laughs) (laughs) It's an interesting line because I don't think that is objectively the bravest thing Percy has done. No. So it's interesting to me that she picks that out as like a moment of bravery. But I think also this idea of like, there's not just bravery in being the person who does the thing, like the peak heroic thing. Like you don't have to be the one that swings the sword or fights in the final boss battle to be brave, which I do really like as a message. I like it also as a moment for Annabeth because when Percy's doing that, she's yelling at him to stop. And then afterward is admitting that it was brave what he was doing. Okay, so back when I worked for Odyssey Online, this this was an article I wrote, published April 30th, 2017, every Percy Jackson short story ranked. Oh. So let's see where I put... This is hard-hitting journalism, Phoebe. Uh-huh. Okay, it was number four. At the time, there were only seven short stories. Wait, no, did I... Hang on, what did I... Why did I do this? <laughs> I put it at number three. I'm lying. I put it at number three above the stolen chariot. What? Why did I do that? Let me read this. <laughs> I love that. Was Did you write this when you were in college? 
Yep. I love when College Baby was like, oh man, I got a deadline coming up. What What do the people want to read about? <laughs> you know what's worse is that <laughs> my thesis was due on May 4th. <laughs> this article was published on April 30th. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what I wrote was... This story is nearly tied with The Stolen Chariot for me, but manages to surpass it because it showcases friendships that were only hinted at in the original series and gives a lot of emotional weight to the events of The Last Olympian. <laughs> I'm about to spoil the book series for you. <laughs> Selena and Beckendorf's relationship, both with each other and with Percy and Abbott, is a large part of the original series' final installment, so this story's focus on shaping them into fuller characters actually proves crucial to the larger overarching plotline and to making their scenes in the last book really hit hard. Though my only wish is that it included some of Clarice and Selena's relationship, since that too is one that is integral to The Last Olympian, but receives little attention in the previous books. You know what? She's always right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an unfortunate truth. I feel like this is true. These are good reasons to like this, but only in retrospect. As a standalone short story before reading The Last Olympian. Yeah. I She's talking about it from, you know, the perspective of someone who I think the book that was about to come out was The Dark Prophecy. I get it, Phoebe. Put it at number three, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> What's number one? Uh, it's The Sword of Hades. Okay. So before we switch to the other story, do you have a bead for this one? Oh. I think it's a marmot. <laughs> <laughs> I do enjoy an anthill image. There's a lot of like, anthill imagery in ancient myth. And bees. Mm. I don't know what to give it to. <laughs> the head. <laughs> it's like a boring answer, but <laughs> I just like the image of like unearthing something you thought was a, a myth. Next, we skip ahead to after Battle of the Labyrinth, right? Right. That's when we get to Percy Jackson and the Stolen Chariot. A quick summary of this one. Percy is at school when he notices a girl in the alley outside the window fighting for her life, who he recognizes as Clarice. And he goes outside to help her. And Clarice originally tries to brush him off, but eventually reveals that Ares gave her his chariot and expects it back by sunset which is a rite of passage that all sons of Ares have to go through when they reach 15. And Clarice is the first girl to ever be tested like this. And because of that, Ares's immortal sons, Phobos and Deimos, have stolen the chariot from her to try to keep her from passing it. Phobos being the god of fear and Deimos being the god of terror. And they keep appearing and basically just torturing Clarice for fun at this point. <laughs> so... Percy offers to help and the two of them piece together that the chariot is stashed at the Staten Island Zoo. And once they get to the zoo, Percy takes on Phobos while Clarice takes on Deimos. And they're each shown sort of a greatest fear of theirs by these gods, but both manage to snap out of it and fight back. They get the chariot and Percy helps Clarice bring it back to where she's meant to meet her father, but leaves before he can end up running into Ares again because he knows that would end badly. <laughs> so. I'm just reading back over my notes. I spent an inordinate amount of time in my notes being like, is this the right subway route? Oh, yes. Yeah, I also was thinking that while I was, I was like trying to track them through the subway. Like, we went, they start on the Upper East Side and then the next thing we get is we got off the subway at Times Square. We got off at like, Times Square. I was like, hang on. <laughs> I was like, 
Wait, and then and then we took the one downtown, and I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. They could have just taken the four five. <laughs> Maybe you know what? This is how I'm gonna explain this. Clarice is not from New York, and no matter what Percy said, she wasn't gonna listen to him. So she was just going like based on her own instincts on how to get through the subway. While he's like, hey, we can take that, and she's like, I'm not listening to you. <laughs> okay, so one of the things that stood out to me in this story was. The confidence that Percy has gained after Battle of the Labyrinth. Yeah. Where we saw him realize how powerful he is. Like, he, I feel like he's kind of settled into his abilities, or especially as a, as a fighter. Which I feel like the first, like, hint of that that we get is how easily he sidesteps Clarice at the beginning when she goes to push him. But it's, like, a theme throughout the story. Yeah, I my first real note for this story is so... He basically, he spots Clarice out his school window and he goes to help her and she's able, they're able to kind of scare off these birds of Aries really easily. And Deimos and Phobos appear and Percy just walks up to Phobos, which incidentally is where we get the word like phobia from. It just holds a sword to his throat and says, you better return that chariot before I get mad. Yeah. <laughs> and this guy's immortal also. <laughs> God, is this god number three? Are we tracking gods? Percy's challenge to a fucking fight? And that line really struck me because, again, it's at the beginning of the story. So it's just like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Percy, I think, finally coming into this, like, power he gets when he's angry. Um, and I think he's mm-hmm. realizing he's got it now, which is kind of scary. Yeah, because it's like now that we've seen him test the limits of his power and realize that he can like basically do anything that he can think of <laughs> when it comes to the water like the way he approaches this story there isn't much doubt he also I, there's a line as well where Percy like also making Phobos nervous because of his reputation that was another thing that I wrote down this is the first time that we kind of hear that Percy's getting a reputation because we know that like you know when he's encountered monsters in the past it's usually on like Luke's command so you know oh well that's why they know who percy is like they've been hunting percy there's a reason but when clarice says that's percy jackson phobos looks surprised and a little nervous is what it says actually let's let's we can't go one episode without talking about luke um (laughs) (laughs) watch me in the next series by the way watch me no i already know how i'm bringing him up No, but let's also circle back to In Battle of the Labyrinth, that line um, that we get from Cronus at the end where we talk about how Luke's afraid of Percy. I feel like in Battle of the Labyrinth, we're seeing him realize the power that he has. And then here and in The Last Olympian, we'll see him realize that people genuinely fear him. Like, I, we know that he has, like, at least in the first book, I think he mentions that teachers immediately label him as a troublemaker because of just kind of the way that he looks. <laughs> he knows that he's someone who people immediately will, like, clock as someone to keep an eye out for. But I don't mm. think he's realized that he is actually capable of creating the danger that people are afraid of him for. And at this point, he has realized that. He's not just realized it. I think he's embracing it. Yes. Like, he's not surprised that they fear him. He's like, yes, you should fear me, actually. (laughs) Battle of the Labyrinth was the realization point, and this is kind of the embracing of it. Yeah, which I think, I mean, this 
isn't this isn't profound considering that the main they're literally fighting the incarnation of fear but i do think this short story is really about fear and how you grapple with yeah. it that was so profound actually <laughs> <laughs> I studied literature, and in this short story where they've sword fight the two incarnations of fear, I think it's about wrestling with fear, like fighting fear. Like, I think this is really, really about. That is such a good point, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> well, they make a point about how um, Phobos and Deimos are kind of two different incarnations of fear, but I do feel like the explanation they give in the short story, I don't think is a very good one as to like what the difference is between the two of them. Especially because it kind of contradicts itself later (laughs) phobos is fear deimos is terror and according to the story deimos is more for like a big crowd phobos is more personal but i looked into it a little bit because i was curious and it seems like it's more about phobos is the fear during battle and deimos is like the fear before battle so like the anticipation interesting (laughs) thinking about that you know so uh, percy he ends up primarily squaring off with phobos which is the fear during battle and clarice is primarily squaring off with deimos and i do think that makes sense because i feel like percy is he he charges headlong into a lot of things he doesn't really i don't think he really dwells or anticipates a lot of fear i think for him he'll get himself into a situation and then reality will set in and he'll then have to come to terms with what he's gotten himself into Hmm. while Clarice everyone at camp is probably experiencing that right now because they know that the battle with Kronos is coming Mm -hmm. and Clarice is probably in her head at this point gonna be leading a lot of that because she's like head of the Ares cabin but yeah for Percy the threat is immediate and constant and happening right now well, for Clarice, it's still in the future. So it makes mm-hmm. sense for those to be the gods that they're facing up against. Yeah. And I do like that this is also kind of a chance for them to finally unpack a little bit together what we sort of talked about in our Sea of Monsters episode, where, you know, Percy sees a private moment of Clarice's where Ares kind of raises his hand and threatens her. And I do feel like this short story is that chance that they kind of get to actually expand on this a little bit more and have that actual moment and conversation. Right. Like I I think I mentioned in the Sea of Monsters episode, that moment was a kind of I see you moment that Clarice Mm -hmm. didn't know that Percy had had. And so, yeah, it's it's nice that they're able to kind of recreate that moment and then actually have some kind of catharsis afterward. The story also starts with when Clarice mentioned she lost the chariot, Percy even recalling that moment. And he says yeah. that he knows that, like, Ares will come down on her, quote, real hard. If yeah, she does. like, that's the reason that, like, he has that thought. And then that's when he says, I'll help you. That's the reason he agrees to help Clarice in the first place. I do want to bring up one other thing from the beginning, which is, again, this introduction of, like, Phobos coming in. When he's giving the clues to where they hid the chariot, he says, You'll find it where the little wild animals live. Just the sort of place you belong. Which is funny, but this line reminded me of the guinea pig moment. Yep. Mm-hmm. Where he says that he is now aware of the tiny, skittish little animal inside of him. Anyway. <laughs> um, they take the Staten Island ferry, ferry, and while they're on the ferry, they're attacked by Deimos, who is riding a sea serpent 
And this is where third note that I made on Percy's newfound confidence, this time with his ability to control water. Because he jumps in there like with ease and is like, oh, clearly he's just like, just like hop off. <laughs> there is no hesitation at this point with Percy using his powers, which makes sense considering how much they developed in the last book. So he sees Deimos making the passengers on the boat panic and he tells Clarice to grab onto his neck and yeah. Clarice doesn't protest. She just grabs him and they jump off and he tells Clarice to tackle Deimos, which I was like, and then what? Like, <laughs> like he's a god. She can't breathe underwater. Like what? what is the plan here? Because then you think like, oh, well, maybe he has another part of this plan where he's going to protect her from the water or something. No, he just like fights the sea serpent. And then Clarice surfaces near him, spluttering and coughing. And he's like, oh, did you get Deimos? And I was like, how? How was she supposed to get Deimos? <laughs> anyway, Percy grabs Clarice and wills the waves to carry them towards Staten Island. When they get to the zoo, the chariot is in plain sight with just a handwritten note taped to one of the horse's chests that says official zoo vehicle. And... I mean, there was a really small moment that I enjoyed, which was a three-year-old girl passing by and pointing at the horses and saying, pony on fire. And then her mom saying, don't be silly, Jesse. That's an official zoo vehicle. <laughs> I think that is a recurring thing where like small children tend to see through the mist a lot easier. Yeah, but especially after reading Battle of the Labyrinth, it made me wonder if some of these kids are just kids like Rachel. It's not just like a, oh, kids can see through the mist. It's like a, that's either a very young demigod or it's like those rare kids who can see perfectly through the mist. And so I liked that coming off of Battle of the Labyrinth because now we kind of have this newer perspective on the people who actually see what's going on. But uh, as they get closer to the official zoo vehicle, Phobos and Deimos appear. Phobos goes after Percy, Deimos goes after, or I think Clarice goes after Deimos. But <laughs> yeah, no, she, she's got to finish the job. Right, so Phobos goes after Percy, Clarice goes after Deimos, and Phobos corners Percy inside of the aquarium. Bad call, Phobos. Right? I was like, of all places. And that's when Phobos shows Percy his greatest fear, which is Camp Half-Blood in flames. And he says that his friends are on their knees pleading with him, save us, Percy, make the choice. He stands there paralyzed and realizes that this is the moment that he knows is coming when he turns 16, that he'll have to make a choice that will save or destroy Mount Olympus. And now that the moment is here, he doesn't know what to do. Okay, I think when you kind of read it back to me, it feels like what he is fearing most is not having made the choice like sitting in this space where he doesn't know what the right decision is and where he's feeling powerless and i think him not knowing what to do is what's making him feel powerless yeah i think it is the uncertainty that is scaring him but also i think part of what's most terrifying about this vision is that he was already too late to save camp half-blood and at this point whatever <sighs> choice he makes is like oh you realizing something <laughs> I don't want to steal your thunder. No, I have no thunder right now. Go for it. Camp Pathblood has already been destroyed. So it's not about saving the world. It's not about saving Camp Pathblood. It is ambiguous when they're saying save us. Do they mean Mount Olympus or save us? 
Oh, I think they mean save us like are your friends. Yeah. I don't think it's save us Mount Olympus at all. That could open up the door to this fear of like that ter- that circumstance in which he wouldn't save Mount Olympus in this choice. Ha- being in that moment where he's forced to stay in this uncertainty, it's making him afraid of himself because it's making him afraid of the part of him that would actually maybe destroy Mount Olympus. Oh, so you're saying that because there is no longer a camp half-blood. This is, I'm starting to agree with you because Percy now knows his uh, fatal flaw, mm-hmm. which is he would sacrifice the world to save a friend, and his friends are specifically saying, save us, Percy, make the choice. And mm-hmm. so he knows that that's literally the choice that he's coming up on, at least in his imagination. You know, in The Last Olympian, we'll see the choice is a little more complicated than that. But... At this point, Percy knows that his fatal flaw kind of contradicts with what he wants to come out of what he knows of the prophecy, (laughs) because in his mind, saving Mount Olympus is saving the world. Yeah. So Percy finally snaps out of it just as Phobos's blade is about to come down on his head. And then he starts to fight back. He stabs Phobos in the arm and he ends up cutting him across the cheek. And he realizes very quickly... That Phobos, without the power of fear, wasn't even a decent fighter. (laughs) And so Percy keeps pressing him back and then eventually says, I couldn't kill him. He was immortal. But you wouldn't have known that from his expression. The fear god looked afraid. And then he kicks him backward against the water fountain, grabs him by the straps of his armor and pulls him up to his face and says, you're going to disappear now. You're going to stay out of Clarice's way, and if I see you again, I'm going to give you a bigger scar in a much more painful place. And then Phobos is so afraid that he disappears. (laughs) And what's crazy is that, like, we don't get, like, anything from Percy here. No. It's one of those moments... I'm trying really hard not to compare this to a scene in House of Hades. (laughs) But after he does something, Annabeth says that she looks at Percy... And can't read his expression, which kind of unnerves her because she's so, she's used to being able to read his expression so easily. And this moment reminds me of that because I'm used to being able to (laughs) read Percy's expressions. Because he tells me things and this time he didn't tell me anything. Yeah, although I do think it's also reminiscent of like Procrustes. Whenever he's the most certain in like what he's doing is when we get the least from him, which makes sense because he doesn't, we don't, he doesn't need to explain to himself what he's doing. So why would we read that? It's not going through his head. Right. He is having no like second thoughts. Like I said earlier, he's gotten so confident that he isn't doubting himself like he usually does. And so you end up getting this whole scene where he like incites fear in the fear God and thinks nothing. He's like, <laughs> yes, this is what I intended. And then um, once Phobos disappears, Percy finds Clarice fighting with Deimos. But Deimos is in the form of an illusion of Ares, standing over her with that raised fist, about to punish her because she's failed. So we're getting kind of an echo of that moment. A real, a really like overt echo now of that moment in Sea of mm-hmm. Monsters that he sees. And it's also an illusion in this moment. Neither of those times is a real Ares in front of Clarice. Clarice has kind of given in to the fear, though. Yeah. And what I liked about this was that Percy thinks about charging in to fight him, but knows that it won't help Clarice and so doesn't do it. Mm-hmm. And all he does is kind of give her the encouragement that she needs to stand up to him. Clarice ends up defeating Deimos in a way similar to the way that 
Percy defeats Phobos. So she disarms Demos and stabs him in the shoulder. And that's when he decides to run in the same way Phobos did. So they end up doing it in very similar ways. Because I think I, I like sort of said it in Garcia of Monsters episode, but they don't really have similar fighting styles because <laughs> Percy thinks through everything and I don't think Clarice does. But when they're kind of in the zone where they're where Percy is not thinking, they fight in very similar ways. When Percy is driven by anger, they are the same. I just think it's interesting that these two fears are kind of paralleled and paired with each other. So I do think like on the surface, this story is sort of about Percy helping Clarice working through her fear. But, you know, kind of in light of what we were talking about when we were digging into like Percy's fear, if our hypothesis is correct... <laughs> that he's afraid of a time where he wouldn't want to save Mount Olympus, that the next thing he sees is, you know, Ares, a god, being abusive to one of his children. Mm. And that's like, that's the reason. That's the other side. That's the thing that he can't abide because he can't abide bullies. Yeah. And then Percy, in one final act of badassery, just smooths the fucking sea for them to just drive back... (laughs) I literally wrote down Jesus, dude. Like, that's just... Like, every stage of him using his powers in this is an escalation. This one is something that tires him out. He describes it as one of the hardest things he's ever done. But it is something that he hardly doubts that he can do. He, like, he, he doesn't really question that if it's something that he's capable no. of. It's the only time he's ever not been able to do what he wanted to do, Charybdis. So far... Yeah... so they get to the intrepid where clarice is supposed to be meeting Ares, and percy tells clarice he'd better get out of there before Ares shows up but before he goes clarice asks percy did phobos scare you while they're talking about what clarice saw in her vision and instead of just saying yeah percy goes into detail and i thought that that was yeah, I thought that was such a big moment for him because he never shares. And the fact that it's like one of the first times that he's done this and it's with Clarice. But he actually tells her like exactly what he saw and tells her like for a second I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. I know how you felt. And I was just so proud of him for actually sharing something. <laughs> and that he like, I don't know, I feel like over the course of this story we see Percy and Clarice start to trust each other on a different level. Mm-hmm. And Percy keeps attributing Clarice trusting him to her having no other choice. By the end of the story, he's still doing it. But there's a moment when when he's about to like flatten the sea so that they can drive across it. And he tells her, drive straight ahead, go. And he says, Clarice was so desperate she didn't hesitate. And I was like, I don't think that's desperation at this point. I think she just like trusts you at this point. (laughs) And clearly Percy trusts her too because he actually shares something at the end. And at the very end, Clarice asks, when you had that vision about your friends and kind of trails off and Percy confirms that she was one of them in his vision, which is just a cute moment. (laughs) I love them. I love Percy and Clarice's relationship. But it's a great moment considering at the beginning of the story when Phobos sees Clarice hanging out with Percy, he says, oh, is that your boyfriend? And she's like, he's not even my friend. (laughs) Like, that's Percy Jackson. And just over the course of this story, she's already she's already had like this kind of strange relationship with Percy where they run in the same circles and like have the same friends but are not friends with each other. And so that kind of question of like, am I friends with Percy or is he my enemy has definitely like popped into her mind at some point. 
but by the end of the story she's clearly like actually wanting to be percy's friend and that's why she asks at the end and percy's kind of happy to call her that do you have a bead for this one oh (laughs) (laughs) um for me it's a bead that has a little painted sign on it that says official zoo vehicle (laughs) (laughs) that's a good one that's a that's a good one maybe a glowing eye like phobos's glowing eye one of his or like a sea serpent because i just think that's really funny okay last thing the very short explanation for why i put the stolen chariot at number four on my list of short stories was as anyone who's spoken to me for more than five minutes knows clarice is one of my favorite characters from any of rick Riordan's books so getting an entire story completely centered around getting to understand her character more and get and get beneath the surface of the tough facade that was slowly being chipped away within the arc leading up to the stolen chariot what is this this lead this run-on sentence is still going as well as seeing percy having to get along with her long enough that they can complete a short quest together is basically the perfect recipe for any short story in my book that was like impossible to understand (laughs) that's all i wrote for that one i would put it at number three now the bronze dragon is fun but i think it's number four of the ones that we've read so far or no, number three, because we haven't read my number one yet, which is next time. Yeah, I'm surprised there's a story that went higher than the Diary of Luke. I have my reasons. They're okay. very close, but there's just something about the Sword of Hades that's so much fun to me. Is that what we're doing next? Yep. Oh, I'm excited. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we're reading uh, the Sword of Hades, which is also in the Demigod Files. Just a reminder that if you would like to participate in our PJO wrap-up episode and want to get your thoughts in or your questions in, you can email us at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com or DM or reply to us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. And all of those are at PJOpod. Okay, uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. you like to look five years younger in a clinical study people that had volume added with juvederm voluma xc in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment look younger feel like you add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with juvederm voluma xc reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with juvederm volure xc For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.